Welcome to the Greener Way podcast, a show about people, planet, and purpose, and how investors and corporate leaders push forward in a complex world. Welcome back, everyone. I'm joined by Fidelity International's Head of Sustainable Investing Australia, Daniela Jaramillo. Daniela manages the Global Fund Manager's stewardship activities here in Australia. We're going to talk about what investment stewardship looks like and how she implements it in her current job, as well as Danny's views on greenwashing and the outlook for 2023. But Danny, first, what is stewardship and how do you apply it to your current role? Hi, Rachel. Thank you so much for the invite. And I have to say, I do love how diligent you are in pronouncing my name in such a good way in Spanish. Um, so I appreciate that. So I've actually um, wanted to be super prepared for answering specifically what is the PRI's uh, definition mm. of stewardship. And the PRI defines, this, uh, defines it as the use of influence by institutional investors to maximize overall long-term value, including the value of common economic, social, and environmental assets on which returns and clients and beneficiaries' interests depend. So it's a pretty comprehensive mm. definition that it actually um, it's pretty complex, and hopefully we can unpack a little bit of that today. Danny, what does that mean from a rubber meets the road perspective, though, um, in terms of the work that you do at Fidelity and, and how you think that this contributes to better investment outcomes? Yeah, I think, um, to, I think to, to fully answer your question, it's important that we kind of go a little bit back into understanding how stewardship has evolved, because this is not only a Fidelity mm. story, so it, it, it's, it's uh, for investors the concept of stewardship has evolved through the years. So initially we, um, I would say perhaps when the whole ESG movement started and when I started my career, engagement was mainly those conversations between um, investors and companies about, it could be governance issues, but it was mainly, around, it was also a lot of environmental mm. and social um, issues. And they were mainly related um, to how, investors would ask a lot of questions about what companies are doing, trying to mm -hmm. understand in a way, trying to assess how those might impact risks. But it was mainly um, asking questions about how ESG issues impact their companies and at times show expectations. So say, we would expect you to be managing this uh, material ESG risks in a, in a, in a specific way. Uh, it also involved proxy voting. So proxy voting is usually part of that stewardship mm -hmm. or active ownership, both of them. Some people talk about them in different sense. I don't really understand the nuance uh, between them, so I kind of use them interchangeably, active ownership and stewardship. And so it, it was usually just how is a company managing those ESG risks, asking questions and then setting some expectations for what mm. investors wanted. But that has changed, I, I would say, in the last five to ten years, at least the way we're making it a bit, I would say, sorry, more five to three years. and. It's, it's become a bit more explicit how investors are moving to worrying a bit more about mm -hmm. systemic issues as opposed to just idiosyncratic company issues. So if I might provide an example that explains kind of the difference, um, if I'm meeting with a chemicals company and I am asking them about how they're managing the water pollution, so let's say they have a lot of pollution going into the water and I'm saying, how are you managing for those risks? And the company answers and they say, look, we've actually checked with the regulator and there's a big loophole there and we don't have 
to any obligations to clean it. And we don't anticipate that this will change. So we've managed our regulatory risks. And then I say, well, but how about if somebody comes and sues you? No, we've actually talked to our lawyers and we're actually um, fine with that. That answer, if I'm just like thinking about it from a much more simpler, I'm managing my ESG risks in that company perspective, that answer Mm -hmm. might be enough. However, if I start thinking across my whole portfolio and I start thinking about that other investment that I have, let's say a dairy farm next to the chemicals company that is using Mm -hmm. the same water. And after a conversation with that dairy company, they tell me their biggest problem is that their cows are dying because of um, the water that they're drinking that's very polluted. Then I start connecting the dots and I'm saying, well, the chemicals company might be fine for managing the risks, but in the real world, that water is still polluted and it's still causing externalities. And those externalities are potentially costing me money. So there's a net, the net costs of that to me as an investor, because that dairy company is not making any money anymore might be higher than that any than any uh, than whatever it would have costed to mm. the chemicals company to process that properly and so that causes me to want to solve the problem the real world problem which is some the chemicals company actually i know you're managing for the legal and the regulatory risk but i actually need you to stop doing that because i have a lot of companies mm. along that river that might be getting impacted by this. I already know one for a fact. I can't mm-hmm. measure all of them, but I know that this is an issue mm-hmm. that I want you to manage. And having those expectations that consider not only one companies, but you're thinking at the portfolio, the system level, is I would say what that evolution from that single company, ESG.1, mm-hmm. some people call it. Um, there's all sorts of names that are arising on too hard to define this. I think of systemic stewardship one that we use at Fidelity. And and I think that's kind of how that. Just a quick note to make sure that I'm clear on this, Danny. When we talk about externalities, we're talking about things that don't necessarily appear directly on a company's balance sheet, but are present in terms of those real world outcomes as, you know, within communities and within ecosystems. Am I correct about that? Yes, uh, like that's so externality is the term that (laughs) economists used to love to use. Uh, but it's basically what negative impacts are you yeah. having on a society that might not be costing you as a company money, mm. but they're certainly mm. costing somebody. And I think some the interesting point. thing there is that what gets defined as externalities now is a really, it, it's a, a commonly evolving space. I remember, you know, carbon emissions used to be the ultimate externality, and now we have means for pricing and reporting on it. So I suppose that's another level of risk, right? That what a company accepts is not within their boundaries today may very well be in their boundaries two, three, five years in the future. That's absolutely right. And 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 so this is what this is an issue that long-term investors are mm-hmm. mainly concerned about. If I'm a day trader, I'm mm-hmm. not concerned about that. But if I'm a long-term investor, as most institutional investors, I would say, are, or even um, in any other type of investor that's thinking mm-hmm. a bit longer term than maybe the next year, these are things that are become much more important. As we talk about all of this, we've sort of been dancing around this idea of real-world outcomes, Danny, um, which I think is a really interesting way of framing a lot of these conversations, particularly when we're talking about things like stewardship. Um, how do you think about real world outcomes? What can you as a as part of an investment fund manager do to sort of improve real world outcomes within your portfolio companies and within the communities in which you operate largely? 
the way we think about real world outcomes uh, at Fidelity is we're always thinking about what is the long term, um, what are the long term costs to the companies we invest in. And we frame all our stewardship activities with that lens. And so, as I've explained to you before, focusing on the real world outcome is what actually allows the system to remove that mm. cost from the system, um, avoiding that to impact other companies. Um, so what does, how do we do it, um, at Fidelity? So stewardship has always been a very important. So we're a, uh, a bottom up, uh, fundamental research investment, global investment manager, which means we have a lot of insights on the ground because we have a lot of conversations mm. with management. So having those conversations about ESG risks is a very, it has been part of our process mm. for a really long time. But we also do and are becoming much more, um, I would say comprehensive about how we think about that top down. So looking at those mm. symptomatic risks uh, from a top down perspective and actually trying to think what we're doing about it. So at the bottom up, you're looking at the company, you're looking at the problems that mm. that company has, mm. and that's it. When you're thinking top down, that's when you're thinking about bigger problems and you're thinking how are those problems mm. are impacting us. That's mm. the first question or are likely to impact us in the, in the mm. medium to long term. And then the other question is, do we have any levers that we can pull that can help us address those problems? And so to make this, pro- this, this process a bit more systematic, we've developed something that we call the influence f- framework, which is basically say, what can we do at each level to kind of help address a problem? So we're thinking at the system level, which might be, for example, to use the most traditional example of climate change, uh, what are we doing at the system level. So as a as a global fund manager, setting an net zero target sets the expectation for mm-hmm. all of our companies. Any public policy advocacy that we might do uh has has that um influence on this on the system. Then we think at the specific com- mm-hmm. uh, industry level. So there's specific industries that have um there's specific industries that have specific characteristics that make them either more at risk of climate change or where we might have some levers because of where they are positioned in the value chain. So, for example, we might not have that much levers, that many levers to influence uh, emissions in um, steel makers because they might not Mm. be listed companies, but we have have a lot of exposure to miners that have scope Mm. three targets. And so we might try to reduce carbon emissions uh, and try to to ask uh, them the large iron ore miners, which is a key component to steel producers, to actually uh, set ambitious scope three emissions so that in a way we're kind of influencing um, those steel makers. So that's kind of an example of how we might think of things. So that's kind of mm-hmm. at the industry level. And then we have the company specific level. So that's just looking at a company climate transition plan, for example. And then the fourth level is what are we doing at the individual level? And this usually looks more at what are we doing within our investment professionals within Fidelity? So kind of what type of activities do we do from a training perspective? Um, climate, I think most of them are pretty sophisticated now, but as we are, as there's other big thematic issues like biodiversity. So how to investigate and how to understand biodiversity, um, when making an investment decisions, it's something that we are ensure that, ensuring that all our 400 analysts on the ground actually know and understand and offer mm. questions to us. So that is what we call our, our, our systems, um, our, our mm. influence framework. And so if you see what's very different from this 
to the previous example where you kind of just start with the company. Here, the tools that you use to try to achieve real-world outcomes mm-hmm. are much broader. So you have public policy advocacy. You can be talking to NGOs at, at some point. You might be doing uh, public policy advocacy at a very regional level, uh, so something specific to Australia versus just doing things that are more global. Uh, setting a target in itself, being um, outspoken in the media about our net zero target. its They're all part of the tools that we use to create the mm. specific outcome. So the challenge now becomes, how do we actually show that we're causing yeah. a real world outcome? And this is where things become a bit more complex. Just to, to talk about this, um, because I think it's worth talking about that a little bit more, because I know for myself, when I reflect on my writing and my interviewing and when I'm talking to people like yourself, um, that reporting of stewardship activities um, and sort of being able to demonstrate authentically that, you know, we have made this impact, the needle has moved in this way, and we feel that we have put in this amount of effort, um, which I think plays into that whole greenwashing question, ultimately. You know, I know it's on my mind. Certainly it's on your mind. How is Fidelity starting to get your head around, um, you know, doing that reporting piece on the stewardship activities? Look, I think this is something that we're thinking constantly mm. about. And again, I might speak more generally about how in general the investors. So we've seen um, Ria did a report mm-hmm. this year on what stewardship and what stewardship best yeah. practice means. And that basically, in a way, it's kind of a sigh of relief yeah. for all of us saying like, oh, okay, we're all kind of going through the same. Yeah. We're all really struggling on how to, we all want to, we all know it's important, but it's really hard. And, and, and the thing that's very difficult about real world outcomes, one of them is, you know, you're having some sort of influence. To what extent that influence is leading to an outcome is very difficult of to course. attribute. Like, to what extent can I claim that my conversation with a company was actually what led the company to develop a, a, um, a framework or to to re- reduce their externalities, whether that is like in scope to, mm-hmm. um, to emissions or scope three emissions or whatever it is. Um, it's very hard because these are complex things that we're mm. trying to change and they usually are a result of multiple inputs as opposed to mm. one big input. There might be specific things where companies actually do come back to us and they say, actually, we just wanted to let you know that after that conversation, we've decided to take some Mm -hmm. action on something. And that's like amazing. But usually on the most systemic things, it's very hard. Nobody's going to report back to you. We've done these things to you. It also requires so many parts of, of of a community, right? There's the investor community, the company itself, regulators and government, um, you know, people in the community um, advocating for themselves as well. It's again, it goes back to that externality question, doesn't it? You know, uh, assigning the boundaries for these things can be um, qualitative at best sometimes. Absolutely, and I think in the past we've been under a lot of pressure. Or the like to, to demonstrate mm. real world outcomes in a way um, to kind of prove that engagement can be more powerful mm-hmm. than divestment. So the divestment story is something that's yes. very easy to tell. If you decarbonize a portfolio and get a portfolio that doesn't have any emissions somehow, because either you've divested from fossil fuels and then you've offset the rest, that's a really easy story to tell and to sell. It's a lot harder to say we're having a seat at the table and I know we haven't seen any dramatic changes that I can 
that we can um, report back as mm. a result of this. But we know that it's important to keep that seat at the table to continue creating change mm. as opposed to letting actors that might not be looking for that change to be in that to, to be the only ones that have a voice in that company, for example. How does this play into this whole greenwashing conversation as well, Danny? Um, because obviously, you know, being able to authentically demonstrate that what you're saying is what you're doing. I assume that this gets a little bit uncomfortable sometimes between yourselves, maybe legal and compliance and risk. Absolutely. I think as a as a practitioner of the industry, I see the raising of awareness about what greenwashing is, uh, the concern from greenwashing and also all the actions that regulators are taking to um, to avoid it and to, to ensure that um, people are not doing it are very important because it just shows the maturity mm. of the industry. But on the other hand, I have to say, I am a bit frustrated as a practitioner, and I don't think there's any other way around it, but it is how much time you spend thinking about how to report <laughs> and trying to report something uh, as opposed to actually doing the work that's going to lead to the change. So that is something that we're all grappling with. How do we balance how much we report um, and how much effort we spend reporting how regularly we need to report. Mm -hmm. So I think we're trying to figure out how often, how regular, uh, but I also understand that our um, that our clients want to know. And so here what we're going to have to come to mm -hmm. terms with is I think investors need to understand uh, clients, so asset owners, um, need to understand that we we can't necessarily provide that attribution. And I think most of them understand it because they've done it themselves and they realize sure. it's very hard. But I think what we're leaning to is kind of trying to explain what we're doing to try to address things at the system level. And so that fully outcomes impact reporting becomes mm -hmm. very difficult, but trying to report more comprehensively of what, what you're doing at each level mm. of the system, even if it is activity type, and and even if you haven't achieved progress, I mean, I had um I had a chat with a, a large um, institutional investor here in Australia that was telling me. She said, "I just want to know, even if you haven't made progress, what mm -hmm. do you think that is, and and what is the mm -hmm. response that you're getting? Like, we don't all only need to see the positive stories and the amazing case studies because we all know that they mm -hmm. don't happen that often. But even just demonstrating the effort that's going on and kind of." Being able to tell the story of the rationale. So we're prioritizing and we're spending resources in this specific issue because we think this issue is important. Or we did our own submission because we thought that we wanted to influence public policy mm -hmm. in this specific way. So being able to articulate the story of the theory of change, I think it's one of the ways in mm -hmm. which we can get around it um, and, and try to report without obsessing about reporting on impact. And, and I love and that outcomes. theory of change model, Danny. I mean, it goes back to sort of, you know, organizing work I did back in the day. And I just think it's, it's such a useful narrative framework among other things. So, uh, which is why I love reading your reports. And speaking of the reports you're writing, Danny, as we're coming to the end of our time together, um, what topics are you thinking about for 2023? Obviously, you've name-checked climate change. That's never going to go away. But what else are you, what is occupying your time? Globally, we're looking at, um, I think, like just transition is continues to mm -hmm. be very important. Um, biodiversity and deforestation are continue to be very important. And we've launched engagements mm -hmm. on the back of that. And um, then, but then uh, we're thinking, obviously, about how um, 
uh, and more locally, we're thinking a lot mm -hmm. about mining. I mean, you know, that's my topic and I probably need another full <laughs> podcast where I can tell you everything that I, I'm very passionate about mining and the yeah. role in decarbonization. But we'll continue to be focused because it's a very, um, it's a very difficult sector, but it's obviously very important to mm. the Australian economy. Um, and um, we think it's key to ensure that miners um, keep their social license mm. to operate and uh, for for us to alleviate a bottleneck, a potential bottleneck in, in decarbonization. And that means addressing multiple challenges from cultural challenges that they have to how they work with First Nations to how they're dealing with their own technology for mm. decarbonizing. So um, that's something that we're hoping uh, to be here locally in Australia to continue talking about and, and, and engaging and trying to um, and create some sort of influence mm. at the system level. Um. Mm, look, I will drop a link to you and I had an amazing conversation on your critical minerals and mining report. Uh, I will that resulted in a feature article, and I will be sure to drop that into the show notes uh, because everybody should check out that report. Uh, Daniela Jaramillo from Fidelity International, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you, Rachel. Excellent. Thanks for listening to the Greener Way podcast. If you liked today's show, remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform and make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Any feedback? Contact us on podcast at fssustainability.com.au. I'm Rachel Allen Backus. The Greener Way podcast is a product of FS Sustainability, a show about people, the planet, and investing in our collective future. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. The Greener Way podcast gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by discussing numerous financial sustainable options and our featured guests. It is not intended as a substitute for professional, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of The Greener Way are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. FS Sustainability operates under an Australian Financial Service license and the exemption made available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect to any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the FS Sustainability website, fssustainability.com.au.